Luke 16, verse 18 reads, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery, and he who marries one who is divorced from a husband commits adultery. Turn over to Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Getting up, he went from there to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. Crowds gathered around him again, and according to his custom, he once more began to teach them. Some Pharisees came up to Jesus, testing him, and began to question him whether it was lawful for a man to divorce a wife. And he answered and said to them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. But Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote to you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. But therefore, God has joined together. Let no man separate. In the house, the disciples began questioning him about this again. And he said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another woman commits adultery against her. And if she herself divorces her husband and marries another man, she is committing adultery. Matthew 19, verses 1 through 12. When Jesus had finished these words, he departed from Galilee and came into the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, testing him and asking, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. But therefore God is joined together. Let no man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If the relationship of the man with his wife is like this, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. For there are eunuchs who are born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who are made eunuchs by men. There are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, We are so thankful for the instruction that Your Word gives us. First of all, in opening our eyes, revealing to us more about who You are. We know that creation itself declares Your glory. But there's so much that we would be in the dark regarding were it not for special revelation. We're so thankful that You have done that. Thank You for Jesus, most of all, whom through whom we have redemption and have new life eternal life. Lord, this morning we come to a section of texts that demand our attention, our our care. I know the subject we encounter this morning is one that is fraught with many perspectives, many opinions. 
Ultimately, Lord, what we desire is biblical truth. We want to know what You say about the matter. And I pray, Lord, that You would guard me from misspeaking and from saying something that is just my opinion rather than what Your Word actually proclaims. May You prepare our hearts to receive truth, Lord, whatever that is. To recognize that we all need correction and we all need grace and forgiveness as well. Lord, we're thankful that You're a God of truth, also a God of grace and mercy. We find our security in Your Son who died in our place and rose again. Pray that You be honored as we talk about this this morning. We pray in His name. Amen. Here in Matthew 19.1, we're reminded that Jesus' earthly ministry is drawing to a close. He, we're told that He departed from Galilee and He traveled into the region of Judea. But at the moment, He's ministering on the far side of the Jordan, on the east side of the Jordan River. Now, as was common during His ministry, Jesus attracted a crowd and crowds began gathering around Jesus Mark tells us that Jesus was spending the time teaching them. Matthew tells us that Jesus was spending time healing them. I'm certain that both things were happening simultaneously as we see throughout the rest of Jesus' ministry. But while Jesus attracted the interest of the general populace, it wasn't only them that came out that day. We know that the Jewish religious leaders also made an appearance. We've already seen their animosity growing towards Jesus. They had murderous intentions in their hearts and they were plotting Jesus' demise. They're hoping for some opportunity to bring formal charges against Jesus that they might then arrest Him and ultimately have Him killed. So, a group of Pharisees show up on this occasion with a question. And note that this question doesn't come from a humble heart, hoping to learn from Jesus and benefit from His ministry, but we're told in Matthew 19.3, out of a desire to test Him or Otherwise, it's translated, trap him. Now, if you wanted to ensnare a popular figure who is known for uncanny wisdom and grace, what kind of question would you put together? If you really wanted to stick it to somebody, we think about in the political campaigns right now, right? You want to try to grab the best question in order to obliterate your opponent. Well, what, what is it that comes to the Pharisee's mind? Well, perhaps it would be a question that would be socially highly charged, an issue which strikes close to home. You know, the more personal, the better. Because it's going to evoke emotions from everyone around Jesus. The more potential, the more personal it was, the more potential it had to turn Jesus' popular support against Him and make Him vulnerable to attack. Or maybe a question that is religiously highly divisive. An issue that would polarize Jesus' ministry Or we could place him into one of two camps and marginalize his ministry. Perhaps Jesus' influence could then be written off as some just sectarian debate. Or maybe you pick a question that was politically highly dangerous. An issue with political ramifications would be a surefire way to get Jesus in trouble with governing authorities. If Jesus could be cast as a political zealot and his influence then with the people highlighted, perhaps they could make a case with Rome and bring formal charges against Jesus and have Rome do the Pharisees' dirty work for them, have him exterminated as a possible threat to the peace. 
You see, with all these considerations in mind, it becomes quite easy to see why it's this question that was put to Jesus on this occasion. They ask him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? Certainly, everyone had a view on that subject. In a society that was basically dominated by males, and in which women had very little rights and often were treated as property, a man's ability to divorce his wife was seen to be, by many, as a basic right. However, Jesus showed such deference and compassion towards women during his ministry. Now, how would he answer the question? Certainly, his question would stigmatize him against one gender or the other. The question that they put forward here is also politically divisive. The Jewish religious leaders were engaged in a long-standing dispute on the issue. There was a religious division on the, on the matter. Two main schools of thought revolved around two chief rabbinical leaders, one by the name of Hillel and another by the name of Shammai. The more conservative Shammai school taught that sexual immorality was the only grounds by which a man could divorce his wife, whereas the more liberal school of Hillel taught that a man could divorce his wife for any unseemliness, everything from she's not able to have children to she serves me poorly cooked food to she talks too loud to she had her hair down to she's not attractive enough anymore. All these things were posited as possible reasons to put away one's wife. But whatever Jesus' choice, he couldn't please everyone. And the Pharisees are going to make use of this to bolster support from whichever group are offended by what Jesus says. The question was also politically dangerous. In verse 1, we're told where Jesus is doing ministry. He had left Galilee, come down to the region of Judea, but he's on the far side of the Jordan. He's on the east side of the Jordan River. That put Jesus in the territory of Perea, governed by Herod. Now remember, is this very ruler who is responsible for the beheading of John the Baptist. And for what reason did that happen? Well, it is true on some level, Herod was kind of foolish and made a vow and a promise to Herodias' daughter that he would give her whatever she wanted after she danced for him and his his uh, companions. And remember, Herodias tells her daughter, I want John the Baptist's head on a platter. And Herod follows through with that because he had made this foolish and rash vow. But what had gotten John the Baptist in prison in the first place was that John the Baptist had said some disparaging things about Herod. Why? Because Herod had divorced his wife and then married his sister-in-law, married his brother's wife. And John the Baptist spoke out against that immorality. So, certainly, Pharisees, knowing the location in which they're in, if we can just peg Jesus to John the Baptist, we saw what happened to John the Baptist in this region when he made statements about marriage and divorce and remarriage. And not to mention the fact that Herod himself was already kind of superstitious. Remember, we saw this earlier in our Gospel Harmony. Herod was thinking about Jesus, that maybe Jesus was some sort of reincarnate John the Baptist. So, again, maybe they're trying to play off of some of these superstitions in Herod as well. I'm sure these Pharisees thought they had Jesus just where they wanted him. And as I come to this text this morning, I have to admit that this question has become no less touchy today. We might not at present have a local ruler who's ready to squelch anything I say from the pulpit this morning, although that could change. And it's certainly fraught, our culture today is fraught with a great variety of religious opinions and continues to be one of the most personal issues that can be brought up and spoken on today is the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage. The tendency in our day is to either consider the issue beyond understanding 
or biblically unclear, or just to avoid it altogether. One of the beauties of when you work through the Scriptures systematically is you don't have the privilege of skipping over texts that might be difficult. We have to walk through those. It forces the teaching of the whole counsel of God, which we all need. One of the potential problems of topical preaching is that you never get to texts that involve touchy subjects. But here we are. The tendency in our day is to often avoid the subject altogether. However, while everyone in Christ bears responsibility to read and obey God's Word, it's a great tragedy that so few churches are speaking on this issue. God's Word has something to say about marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And it has tremendous practical implications on the nature and direction of the family today. There are actually several texts that deal with this issue, and those texts must be listened listened to for God's glory and for our good. And no matter what people might say, it is not loving to turn a blind eye and pretend that nothing is wrong while families are being ripped apart. We can no longer refuse to get involved when Christian couples start down the road of separation and divorce. We must not fear taking sides. We have to counsel with these families and offer assistance and help. We need to bring loving rebuke to those who are in error. And we need to bring consistent encouragement to those who are faint-hearted. Hurting marriages need prayer and involvement, not gossip and isolation. We all need to be a little more transparent about our own struggles and our own continual need for God's grace. And then be willing to help brothers and sisters in Christ who are similarly struggling. Do you know that each year in the United States there are well over one million divorces, leaving men, women, and children crushed in their wake? No one escapes a divorce without suffering damage and hurt, no matter how friendly the divorce may seem. The enactment of no-fault divorce laws hasn't helped anything either. Our states making the road to divorce more simple has not done anyone any favors. And the church's silence on the matter has caused even worse problems. When Christians do go to the Scriptures for guidance on this issue, it's often with so many preconceptions and predispositions that they're not being honest and genuine in their interpretation of the texts. Now, we always struggle with this, myself included. Please hear me on that. We all come with biases and presuppositions. But the goal of godly biblical interpretation and study is that we allow those presuppositions and biases to be, in, to be evaluated by God's Word and by the Holy Spirit. And not to just always find what we want to find, but to deal with what is found and what is there, to be honest and transparent about it. My prayer for you this morning is that you would give the Scriptures full reign in your mind and heart. To ask God to expose any hardness of heart preventing you from receiving His Word, whatever it may be. Our disposition should be one of humble obedience. And then after we hear what God desires from us, then we need to trust Him to provide us with the grace that is necessary to live in obedience to His commands. And to desire as He desires. I also want to make sure that I hope you all know that it's because I love you that I'm dealing with this subject. 
It's because I love you. I have a responsibility before the Lord to preach the whole counsel of God, and I can't allow this subject to go unaddressed. Many of you know that I myself have experienced the sorrow and pain that comes from divorce. When my dad decided to divorce my mom, I wished that there was more that the church had done in calling him to repentance. I still thank the Lord. There was a couple of men in the church that we were going to that did come over and confront my dad, and I'm still so thankful to the Lord. Even if my dad was not receptive to what they had to say, I still thank the Lord that there were a couple of men that loved my dad and loved my family enough to come over and confront him when he was considering and followed through with separating and divorcing my mom. My mom continues to be an example to me of what it is to maintain a consistent witness and testimony to the covenant that she made before God when she married my dad. And so I know this personally. I know the personal feelings and hurt that is caused from divorce, and no one is exempted from it. Now, I know that God works all things together for good. I know as a result of those circumstances that it changed my mind about what I wanted to do with my life. It caused me to rethink my priorities Part of me being here today is a result of those circumstances and the situations that I went through while I was in college as a result of that. I'm also thankful to proclaim that the Lord has brought my dad to repentance and I have a good relationship with him now. But things are forever changed. Divorce changes things. And you're deluded if you think that divorce is an isolated thing. It impacts and affects so many things. And I also believe wholeheartedly, as Malachi 2.16, that God hates divorce. So how does Jesus respond to this inquiry? And how does his response inform us today? Here in a sermon entitled, The Lesson in Missing the Point, I believe we learn not only what God says about the subject of divorce for immediate practical application to our lives, but also there's a hermeneutical and interpretive principle here which ought to help us in Bible study and application in general. Simply stated, our marital problems derive from our sinful preoccupation with ourselves. That's where marital problems happen. It happens as a result of our sinful preoccupation with ourselves. And the only solution to this issue is to be captured by a glorious vision of God's will. To think less about what we, quote, quote, want in the flesh and consider more, what is it that God wants from me and from my marriage? First, let's come to grips with the problem. We first need to look at our sinful preoccupation with self. Our sinful preoccupation with self. You see, the selfish heart demonstrates itself in, first of all, seeking divorce rationale. Trying to find reasons by which I can divorce my spouse. The question of the Pharisees is just this. Is it lawful, is it permissible for a man to divorce his wife for any cause at all? Now, Jesus' immediate response to that question, we're going to actually save. And we're going to look at in point two in just a minute. But his immediate response is discounted by the Pharisees. And they reply to him, why did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Now, what are the Pharisees referring to? They're referring to Deuteronomy chapter 24. If you want to turn over there, you can. Verses 1 through 4. Deuteronomy 24, verses 1 through 4. Listen to how that text reads. When a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out from his house, 
And she leaves his house and goes and becomes another man's wife. And if the latter husband turns against her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, or if the latter husband dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away is not allowed to take her again to be his wife since she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Now, this whole question about divorce and the rationale behind being able to divorce one's spouse is flowing out of this Deuteronomy 24 passage. There is no other text in the Old Testament that gives reasons for which someone can divorce their wife. So this rabbinical debate was raging over the nature of the indecency found in her. It happens if she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her. That word there, translated in English, indecency, was a matter of discussion and debate. What is the indecency found in her which gives you then a right or command to divorce or send away your wife? I've already mentioned there was a wide range of interpretations. But ultimately, it seemed that almost any sort of selfishness in the husband could be used against his wife. It sounds like to me, it sounds much like today the argument, well, God wouldn't want me to be unhappy, would he? God wants my happiness, right? And my spouse is making me unhappy. Let's consider the main point of Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4. Why don't you just note this? Verses 1 through 3 are all the setup. It's actually a big, long, extended if clause. And then the then doesn't come until verse 4. We can simplify the whole scenario by saying it this way. I'm just going to simplify all of that to this statement. If a man marries a woman and he divorces her and she remarries and then is divorced again or widowed by her second husband, then the first husband can't have her back. That's the legislation of Deuteronomy 24. Do you know anything in that statement that says you can divorce your wife? You should divorce your wife? You must divorce your wife? Not at all. Moses is legislating here a condition in which someone already has divorced one's wife or is thinking or contemplating divorcing one's wife. And then he offers here a caution. Really, the gist of Deuteronomy 24 is to tell men, you be cautious about divorcing that wife. Why? Because if she marries someone else and then he divorces her or he dies, you can't have her back. That's what Moses is saying there. There's nothing in that text that says commanding men to divorce their wives or giving them rights or privileges to divorce their wives. Quite the contrary. The whole issue that's present there is to provide them with a deterrence against hasty divorces. Moses' words in Deuteronomy 24 were certainly not a command. They were instruction by way of concession. What Moses is doing here is saying, since the fact that divorces occur, not saying they're good or, or not good, he doesn't give a statement one way or the other about that. But what he does say is when these do occur, you can't have back the woman that you divorced if she's married someone else and then is divorced or widowed. There's nothing in that passage commanding divorce. And Jesus takes them to task on that, right? He says, because of your hardness of heart, this was permitted to you. 
Now, I find it so odd that we continue to engage in the same mistake that Jesus' contemporaries were engaged in in the very thing that Jesus is attempting to correct. For this reason, I say this is a lesson in missing the point. The point of Deuteronomy 24 wasn't to give people rights and privileges to divorce their spouses. The purpose of it was to cause them to think twice about a hasty decision like that. That's all that Deuteronomy 24 ends up declaring. And yet, what they zeroed in on was this indecency. What is the indecency? What can I find against my spouse and therefore get rid of my spouse? Sadly, I think that we've engaged in the same sort of situation in Matthew 19 today. See, Moses permitted, Jesus says, you divorce your wives because of your hardness of heart. The desire for divorce does not arise in God, but in our sinful, rebellious, hardened hearts. And the divorce epidemic that we see today is evidence of the nature of this world as fallen. For from the beginning, Jesus says, it was not this way. It's then and only then that Jesus follows up this statement with what is famously referred to now today as the exception clause. Now, I say to you, akin to the Sermon on the Mount's introductory formula that emphasizes Jesus' unique authority, he says, but now I say to you that whoever divorces his wife except for, and here's the word, immorality, the word in Greek is porneia, and might marry another woman commits adultery. Jesus explains that the Jewish legal procedure of divorce didn't work. Why? Because he says, after having divorced one's wife, marrying someone else, you commit adultery. Well, how would that be possible? Well, it's only possible because that divorce didn't actually separate you. That legal piece of paper didn't actually change God's perspective on the marriage. And understood rightly, you'll see that there's no contradiction between this statement and what Jesus said earlier in Matthew 5, verses 31 through 32, where he says there, whoever sends his wife away, let him... You've heard it said... Whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of porneia, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. So contextually here, Jesus is giving his exposition of the spirit of the law. That's what he was doing in the Sermon on the Mount. We're picking up on more of that here in Matthew 19. Remember, he says things like this. You've heard, you know, you shouldn't. He says something like, you know, eye for eye, tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, if someone slaps you in the cheek, turn the other, right? He also says things such as, you say to not murder someone else, but I say if you have hatred in your heart towards another, you've violated the spirit of the law in hating them. It's as if you've murdered them. You've violated the spirit of the law to not murder. And similarly, Jesus says, if a man lusts in his heart after a woman, it's akin, it's akin to violating the spirit of the law to not commit adultery. And similarly here, someone who divorces and marries someone else. Again, this is a violation of the spirit of the seventh commandment to not commit adultery. But somehow, most of the discussion of Matthew 19 today has revolved around the nature of the exception. What is the right translation and interpretation of the Greek word porneia? Now, doesn't this sound like this history repeating itself? What were the Pharisees doing during Jesus' day? What's the nature of the unseemliness in the woman that we can get rid of her for? And now, what have we done with Matthew 19 today? What's the nature of this immorality? On what basis can I get rid of my spouse? That becomes the driving emphasis of so much discussion in Matthew 19, and so much so that I have to address it. I can't just not address what this means. 
However, I want to caution us that that's not the main point of the text. And you'll see why in a few moments. Let me take you through a quick perusal of history on this issue. It's not just a debate that's happening today. It's been one that's been raging through the centuries. But interestingly enough, there was nearly unanimous consent in the early church up until the time of the Reformation. And this is their belief. Early church teaching on the subject said this, the marriage bond is binding until the death of one of the spouses. And therefore, remarriage following divorce for any reason is adulterous. Now, they went one step further and said, when a marriage partner was guilty of unchastity, they understood that word pornea to be adultery. If a marriage partner is guilty of adultery, then the other was expected to separate. In other words, you were expected to separate from your spouse as soon as that was figured out, but remain single. And why? For the hope that the one who is engaged in the sin, in the adultery, would be brought to repentance and restoration of the marriage would be come back together. You see, if either one married, then what happens? How can there be reconciliation and restoration between the couple? That was the early church view. It lasted for 1,500, 1,600 years. That was the prevailing view. The view remained relatively unchallenged until the 1500s, the 16th century, when Erasmus suggested a different view that was then in turn adopted by the Protestant theologians. It was really a refusal to accept Augustine's and Aquinas' view about marriage. They believed and taught that marriage was a sacrament. It's an unfortunate translation from the Latin Vulgate. If they had been reading in the Greek, they would have seen the word musterion from Ephesians 5 and wouldn't have tied it the way that it was. But as a result, Erasmus and Luther and Calvin and Beza, they all react against that definition that marriage is somehow a sacrament, that we're somehow receiving grace from God by being married. They reacted against that, and rightly so. They were right to do so. But it caused them to then consider through this whole issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage a little bit further. Luther, in particular, spearheaded the, the uh, movement forward that concluded that the innocent party in any divorce should be allowed to marry again. But how could he teach that in light of what the Scriptures teach? Well, he did it on the basis of this thought that the one who's engaged in adultery while in marriage should be considered as dead. How could he say that? Well, he said it on the basis of Old Testament law. What did you do with an adulterer? You killed them. Death. So, so this is what Luther puts forward. He goes a step forward, a step further to say that since marriage is something that's being legislated by governing authorities, and since governing authorities won't put these people to death, we can just count them as dead and allow the person who's innocent in that conflict to remarry. He went one step further from that and said that if anyone completely deserts their spouse, that person should be considered no better than an unbeliever and deserves the punishment due an adulterer should be considered dead as well. And that way, the other person, again, the innocent party, should be allowed to remarry. John Calvin, Theodore Beza said much the same. They said that marriage is indissoluble and divorce is not allowed. However, an exception is made in the case of adultery because the civil authorities do not apply the law of capital punishment. Theoretically, there is really no difference as the adulterer should be considered as dead. That was their teaching. And you'll see that that language 
finds its way into the Westminster Confession of Faith, 1648. You can read this, and you'll see it described right there. And it has, as a result, had large influence since its emergence as the Westminster, rightly so, should have a lot of influence. There's a lot of really wonderful things there. This is one I would disagree with them on. Why do I disagree with them? Because the supreme basis for their argument is grounded in a legal fiction. The spouse is not dead. They're still alive. The adulterer is not dead. Whatever the reason for it, he's not dead. And we as people of God ought to yearn and hope for the repentance to come, be granted by the Lord, and for reconciliation to be effected. Romans 7, verses 2 and 3 is used as proof for that perspective, which is really strange to me, because the whole point of Romans 7 is that a woman is bound as long as her husband lives. But once he's dead, then she can remarry. I'm going to spend a couple of minutes discussing the exception because it's appealed to so often in divorce discussions. However, I think it would be misdirected to spend all of our time here because I don't think it's the main emphasis of the text. The situation that we have here is somewhat akin to what happens when people take the model prayer of Jesus and reduce it to a meaningless repetition. The very thing which Jesus is warning against in the prelude to giving the model prayer. He says, those pagans, they think that they're heard for their meaningless repetitions, for their endless words. He says, don't be like them. Your father knows what you ask before you even ask him. And then he gives the model prayer. Pray then in this way. He's giving an example. And it's so sad that in that text, the whole point of it is to say, don't pray with meaningless repetition. But what have so many people done with our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name? We've made it a meaningless repetition. What is Jesus doing with the Pharisees? He's trying to direct their attention away from investigating what is this unseemly thing. So we'll see here in a moment. But now in the very context where he's trying to do that, what have we done today? We focused in on what is the pornea? What is that immorality? We're always searching for loopholes. We're always looking for some way out. Is that what Jesus would have us do? Is that what's glorifying to God? What is the nature of this pornea? Interesting here. Two different words used in the same verse, Matthew 19. Verse 9. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for pornea, there's the word, and marries another woman, commits adultery. Different word. Mokea. There's a couple of interesting issues we have to resolve when we come to an interpretive decision on this verse. Here's the big things I want you to think about. Number one. Is there an interpretation of this text that makes sense of why the term porneia is used instead of moikeia twice? The word adultery is in the verse. It's the last word there. He commits adultery. So why doesn't he use it before that too? Except for the reason of adultery. In such case, then, otherwise it would be adultery. In other words, it would read like this. I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for adultery and marries another commits adultery. Why a different word? Why porneia and not Moikea. Why? Why? That's the answer. Second thing we have to answer. Is there an interpretation that agrees completely with the clear, unqualified teaching in the New Testament that remarriage following divorce without the death of one's spouse beforehand constitutes adultery? We have other texts in the New Testament that speak that way. 
So how do we bring these things together? How do we understand them together? How do we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture on this matter? Third, is there an interpretation that agrees completely with the clear impression that Jesus' teaching that he's giving here is a standard higher than the Pharisees? That there's a position here that he holds that insists on God's original design found in Genesis, that marriage is to be indissoluble. And also will explain the reaction of the disciples that are following after this. In other words, if what Jesus is doing here is just saying what one of those schools of rabbis were already teaching, why would the disciples be so shocked at the end of it? He'd just be like, oh yeah, somebody's already teaching that. Okay, Jesus. Yeah, in case of adultery, you can, then it's all fine. But then why would they be so shocked? Another thing, is there an interpretation that explains why this exception is found only in Matthew? Over in Mark's Gospel, the exception's not there. You don't see that except for Pornea there. So, how do you make sense of that as well? Well, there's been several interpretive options put forward. For time's sake, I'm only going to mention a couple real quickly. I've already mentioned the early church view. Remember that is so many, so they saw that as adultery. If adultery is found, you're to separate from your spouse until there's repentance and then a restoration. If there's no repentance, you remain single for the rest of your life. That's the early church view. The Protestant reformer said, again, pornea there is adultery, but the reason why the, but the innocent party can remarry because the guilty party should be considered as dead because they should have been killed under Old Testament legislation. Okay, that's the that's the that's the Protestant or contemporary Protestant view on the on the passage. But to both of those questions, I ask these. Then why are there two different words used? Why immorality and adultery? Why not just adultery, adultery? That has to be answered. Secondly, can we really build a case upon legal fiction? We're going to act as if so-and-so is dead. And then for that matter, it seems to open up the Pandora's box. My spouse is very mean. That's unchristian-like. I'm going to treat you as dead. And now I'm going to divorce you and remarry. What stops that from happening? I mean, we've already created the legal fiction, so how far does the legal fiction extend? That's a question of application. Third one, how does this explain the shock of the disciples? As I just mentioned here, if Jesus is just saying what one of the schools of rabbis were already saying, then in the case of adultery, this is okay. If Jesus is just repeating that, then why are the disciples so shocked? I mean, they're so shocked that they say, if it's like this, it's better for a man not to marry at all. Why would they say that? If there's already contemporaries going around saying the very thing that Jesus has said. Well, I'm going to at least offer two other possible interpretations. There are many others, but here's two. One is the no-comment view. The no-comment view reads this exception differently than the other ones read it. And it really does group around this idea of what is being accepted and how is this exception being applied. They would read Matthew 5.31 this way. I say to you, however, that everyone who d- dismisses his wife, setting aside the matter of pornea, makes her an adulteress. And whoever marries her, who has been dismissed, commits adultery. They would read Matthew 19.9 this way. I say to you, however, that if anyone dismisses his wife, regardless of the issue of pornea, and marries another, he commits adultery. And whoever marries one who has been dismissed, commits adultery. Now, what's wonderful about that interpretation is if it's very well what Jesus' overarching point is here in this text. He's saying, no matter what you end up calling that pornea, no matter what, how you end up defining it in the end, I've got something more to say to you. 
Because however you end up getting a divorce, if you remarry, you commit adultery. That's the way that would be reading. So in other words, regardless of your definition of porneia, no matter how you define this unseemliness that from which you think you were allowed to divorce your wife, going forward and marrying someone else is an act of adultery. That's how they would read that. So they're seeing this exception as kind of reading as regardless, regardless of this issue of indecency. And the reason why he uses two different words is because the word there, porneia, is being used to try to point back to the Old Testament text of unseemliness. What Jesus is saying is that whatever unseemliness you think that is, it doesn't matter because if you marry again, it's now adultery. Now, if that is understood, it makes sense of the two different words. It also makes sense of the disciples' reaction, right? They're like, man, in other words, you're saying, you're just for life. How can it be this way? That's some, some good things that way. The, the one issue I have with that interpretation is just a question is whether or not that's grammatically tenable. Can we read the except the way that they're wanting to read it? They're wanting to read it like in a sense of regardless of whatever you think about. Is that a valid way of reading the word except? That's a question. So I'll provide you one more view. The one I lean toward. You have to say the best for last, right? Betrothal view. Under this view, porneia is understood as unfaithfulness prior to the consummation of one's marriage. In other words, you discover that your soon-to-be spouse has been unfaithful. The word porneia being used because that word is used often to refer to immorality outside of the marriage bed. Adultery is the word that's used to describe immorality while married. Now, immorality in general, can have that general sense as well. But it would make sense of why two different words are being utilized here. In other words, the exception allows for dissolution of an engaged but non-consummated marriage, but not for a marriage that has been vowed and consummated. But why would this be concerned with divorce? In other words, you go, well, why would you need a divorce if you were just engaged? That doesn't make sense. Well, it does in Jewish society. In Jewish society, a betrothed couple were considered husband and wife. Interestingly enough, Matthew 1, Joseph and Mary are not married. They're betrothed. But meanwhile, he's referred to as her husband in that text while not married. You see, there was several month period in which preparations were, were done. And the betrothal was a legal contract between the two that were engaged to one another. Now, we don't get that today because we don't have engagements that run that way, right? Engagements are still like a trial period leading up to the marriage. But in Jewish society, the betrothal was a contract. So in order to get out of that, what do you have to do? Give a certificate of dismissal. In other words, a bill of divorce was required by Jews in such cases. This also does a further thing. It helps explain why the exception would be found in Matthew's Gospel and not in Mark or Luke. Remember, it's Matthew's Gospel, Matthew chapter 1, that refers to Joseph's proposed action of putting away Mary secretly, silently. By the way, putting away, same word, apoluo means to send away. That's the word for divorce. So he's divorcing Mary. They're just betrothed, but he's divorcing her. And his action is considered righteous. He's a righteous man. Therefore, he was putting her away. It would make sense of and build up the case that Joseph's action was righteous. 
Let me ask you this. If Mary's pregnancy was not due to a work of the Holy Spirit, in other words, if she had been unchaste, if she had engaged in immorality, what would you call that? You'd call it porneia. That's the word you'd use for it. And interestingly enough, in John 8, the Pharisees used the exact same word in an ad hominem argument against the man, against Jesus, by saying to him in John 8:41, you were doing the deeds of your father, or he says this, and they say to him, we were not born of porneia. We were not born of fornication. We were not born of illegitimate birth. We have one father, God. What are they saying? Well, it's possible that what's going on here is they've heard word of the fact that Joseph hadn't slept with Mary before they got married. But meanwhile, Jesus is born before Joseph's with her. So how is that possible? It must have been porneia, unless it was a miracle. You see, the word is used that way consistently in the Gospels to refer to sexual sin outside of marriage. Now, again, the word can be used with, other, with marriage in mind as well, but it makes good sense of using two different words in this context and why Matthew would include it and maybe the others wouldn't. So Jesus is saying, it is always wrong to separate what God has joined together. What is more, divorce and remarriage, except if one divorces during the betrothal period, is tantamount to committing adultery. But he's saying, don't separate what God has put together. And then his added comment down here in the, at the end of the text is just to say, and there's a further problem that if you remarry after divorce, you're now committing adultery. And that you can understand why the disciples will then react strongly to that. Because that would have not been what was being taught by either rabbinical schools. Neither of them were teaching that. In the end, Jesus' words, however they're specifically interpreted, end up serving the same purpose as Moses' in Deuteronomy 24. He's saying to them, given that merit, remarriage after divorce is a violation of the spirit of the commandment against adultery, one should be restrained from divorce in the first place. And let me say it this way. If everyone who got divorced was not allowed to remarry anyone else except their spouse, do you think it would make them think more about divorce in the first place? Absolutely would. Absolutely would. I've answered that for you. Our reaction to marriage, though, as it's meant to be, our reaction to marriage as it's meant to be, this is what Jesus is outlining for us, but what is our reaction to this? The response from the disciples is proof that Jesus' words were unexpected, not only by Jesus' opponents, but also by his followers. Could Jesus really mean what he said? It's as if the disciples here are, take Jesus aside. Mark and Mark's gospel were told that they did this privately into the house. They take him aside and go, are you sure you really wanted to say what you just said? I mean, we're going to give you an opportunity to back off that extreme stance here a little bit. I mean, Jesus, if it's like this, if it's really like this, it's better not to get married at all. It seems the disciples are convinced that the difficulties that come with marriage are inevitable. And if the escape clause of divorce is removed, then they can't understand anyone entering into that covenant. If, that's, if it's sealed and done and over and there's no other choices after that, who walks into that? That's their question. Who would ever jump into marriage if they knew that marriage was that serious? Hmm. It was conceivable for a man to unwittingly marry a contentious woman. It would make life miserable for him. We have Proverbs that speak to that, right? We all know them. Husbands, never read these to your wives. The leaky faucet, the dripping attic, all of these things. The nagging, contentious wife. The question is, when some guy unwittingly gets into the situation, and man, this person is a lot different than I thought they were. 
seems kind of quite pessimistic, doesn't it? They're hoping that Jesus here might lighten his previous statement. In their mind, the idea of for better or for worse seems untenable. And for many today, it's the same. What do we see today happening often? We have prenuptial agreements. We have people writing their own wedding vows. I don't have any problem with writing your own wedding vows, but deliberately to remove statements like, as long as we both shall live. And inserting instead, as long as you continue to love me the way I want to be loved. I'll do my best. We'll give this a shot. We'll see how this goes. So romantic, isn't it? Jesus' answer to his disciples indicates that he knew the implications of what he'd said, though. Jesus knew exactly what he had said. He says, he says to them, not all men can accept this. Not all men literally can make room for these words. Not all men can make room for what I've just said. But to the ones that have been given it, they'll make room. There are eunuchs from birth. There are eunuchs made that way by men. There are eunuchs choosing that situation for the kingdom of heaven. The one able to make room for this, let him make room for this. The one who's able to accept this, let him accept it. You see, the solution was not to lessen the permanence of marriage, but to posit that singleness also has its own difficulties. Jesus says, yeah, you're right, you can remain single. However, understand, that has its own needs of grace. The married person needs God's grace just as much as the single person needs God's grace. Both positions in this life can be given by God's will. and It's absolutely a free choice to us. You can choose to be married or you can choose to remain single. But no matter which way you go, we're all, independent. We're all dependent on the Lord. We all need His grace. There are trials and difficulties that come because you get married. And they're unique to marriage. And there are trials and difficulties associated with singleness that are unique to singleness. And there are some trials and difficulties that we all experience, whether you're single or married. But there are unique problems to each situation. And Jesus says to the one who is able to make room for this, make room for it. Hendrickson says, The disciples, along with so many people, then and now, seem to be obsessed with the idea, what can I get out of marriage for myself? Their question should have been, how can a man use this marvelous institution for the benefit of his wife? For the benefit of his children-to-be? For the benefit of his fellow man? And for the benefit of God's kingdom? And likewise, the person who chooses not to get married should have the same thoughts running his decision. How can I use my singleness to benefit my fellow man? To, to grow and flourish God's kingdom? That should be the driving focus. You see, that's the problem for so many of us. All of us struggle with this. Is Our inherent selfishness comes in here and we want things to be catered to us in such and such a way. You see, while definitely marriage or singleness can be a difficult road to travel, Jesus' true disciples will be given the resources necessary to live up to it. I remember on one occasion... I actually had an opportunity to talk with somebody in a counseling meeting about this very issue. I was walking through, having some marital difficulties, uh, all kinds of stuff going on. I remember walking through these texts with this individual, and I remember when I got done, he replied to me, he said, well, if what you said is true, the only way that anyone could live that way is if they were clinging to Jesus with all their might. What did I say to that? Amen. Right? 
That's exactly. But that's all of life, isn't it? No matter what your circumstance. And when we're single, anyone who is single right now who's wanting to be married one day, it's hard, isn't it? It can be difficult. There's trials associated with singleness. Some people in marriage, yes, there's wonderful, blissful moments. There are also difficulties, right? We can all admit that. If you don't, you're a liar. And you need to repent of that. We all have have struggles, right? We all have struggles. But we all need God's grace. We serve such a gracious God. A God who desires for us not only His glory, but our own good. And herein lies the key. We have to deny ourselves. We have to take up our crosses and follow Jesus. Isn't that what the Christian life is all about? It's all about denial of self. It's all about putting the other first. It's all about taking the trash of this world that God might be glorified through our suffering and trials and difficulties. That's only possible. The only person who's able to receive these words and make room for this is the one who's been transformed by the grace of God. You have to be, point number two, granted a glorious vision of God's will. The only way you will desire this life and live in accordance with what Jesus is saying here is because your mind and heart have been transformed. Nobody of their own will and volition goes, yeah, my spouse is treating me like junk. And I just want to love him. I just want to take him in my arms and say, yes, let's just push through this. and You're just lovely and wonderful while they're spouting nasty crud and filth at you. No one in the flesh responds to that with goodness and kindness and love and mercy and grace. The only one who's able to do that is because they've been transformed by God's grace. They've met someone. They've met someone who takes all of their junk and still loves them. They've met Jesus. And they've seen Jesus. And their focus has changed. They're no longer looking around for loopholes. They're no longer looking what constitutes a legitimate reason to get rid of my spouse. They do as Jesus instructed. And what an affront to the Pharisees' pride this must have been. Jesus says to them, Have you read... Have you read? And then what he states is he quotes from Genesis. Genesis 1, 27, and Genesis 2, 24. Have you read? Saying, your question has gone awry from the beginning. These Pharisees that should be so familiar with God's design for marriage, they're not. They're consumed with what is the unseemly thing. And Jesus says, How about you go back to the beginning? God made the male and female. He said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, be joined to his wife, that you shall become one flesh. It's a compilation. Genesis 127. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And then Genesis 224. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. You know what Jesus is doing here? In the terminology of cards, he trumps the whole discussion. He says, Genesis trumps the discussion of Deuteronomy 24. He doesn't think Deuteronomy 24 doesn't say something. It certainly does. But he's saying that Genesis is informing our understanding of what was God's purpose and intention in marriage in the first place. What's going on in Deuteronomy 24 is legislation as a concession of something that's going on because of the hardness of our hearts. That's what that's all about. The divorce epidemic is a result of the hardness of human hearts. And sometimes we need further instruction and legislation to know how to work through all this massive, nasty sin. And so there's further instruction. But what was God's original intention from the very beginning? He created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created a male and female. He created them. A man leaves his father and mother, is joined to his wife. The two become one flesh. As has been said before, God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, nor Adam, Eve, and Genevieve. Right? He created Adam and Eve. There was no other choice for Adam. 
I was like, I was like, well, you know, this is pretty good, but could you take from my other side? There was none of that. There was no dating. There was no. It, here it is. God fashions Eve specifically for Adam. Only after he's taught Adam that no other creature is a suitable companion to him. Also, see how same-sex unions, besides being unnatural and sinful, will not provide for the furtherance of the human race biologically. God's design from the very beginning was to provide for the procreation of the human race, as well as for partnership and support and love in the form of marriage. One man united one woman for as long as they both shall live. So no longer are the two one or two, but they're one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, Jesus says, let no man put asunder. You hear that in wedding ceremonies. So Jesus simply declares that whatever God has brought together should not be torn apart by men. You see, marriage ceremonies are not just witnessed by family and friends, but by the Lord. And he's the one who ultimately brings a man and woman together. Them leaving father and mother and cleaving to one another. A new family is created in the uniting of husband and wife. The two become one flesh. They are united and are to be so until death parts them. You see, if we think that marriage is a casual union of two consenting adults, then divorce will always be something that's applicable and useful at your whim. If marriage is just a casual consensus between two individuals, then divorce is always going to be an option. It will always be on the table. But if we recognize that marriage is God's creation and therefore defined and governed by Him, a whole different perspective is given to us. Had the Pharisees not sought any further clarification, can I also say that had they followed this up with a question regarding Moses' statement, it would have been left at that. Jesus would have said, have you not read what was in the beginning? Male and female, they shall flee father and mother, join together, one flesh. What God has put together, let no man put asunder. Done. That's the statement. That's his answer. Jesus' answer to, for what reason can I get a divorce, is to redirect the inquiry. For what reason did God give you marriage? That's what Jesus is concerned about, and that ought to be our concern as well. But not only do we see this in creation, but we see it in redemption. We see a view here of God's work in the gospel. And without God's help, true God-glorifying marriage is not just difficult, it is impossible. Can I say that again? It's not just difficult, it's not just hard, it's impossible, apart from the grace of God. A true God-glorifying marriage. You can be functional. (laughs) You can function, sometimes for a long time. But it will not glorify God without God's help. We need God to supply us with desire and ability to obey His commands. So what is our ultimate source of desire? What gives us ability to live in this fashion? What fuels our passion and drive for building up our spouses? Is knowing that we have a bridegroom in heaven who loves us with an unfailing love. God teaches His people this wonderful lesson in the Old Testament through not only the words but the life of Hosea the prophet. He's told to marry Gomer, a prostitute, and then to buy her off the slave block and bring her back to himself. And through this, Hosea learned God's steadfast, loyal love was consistent even in the midst of rebellious, unfaithful people. 
The truth is that we are adulterous. We're the adulterous slave who is in the midst of the rebellious, unfaithful people. Yet Jesus loved us and didn't give up on us. And loved us even while we were enemies of His. Just think about this, dear brother or sister in Christ. Aren't you glad that Jesus doesn't give up on you? Aren't you glad that it's not like one day you do something wrong and all of a sudden he gets slapped through the divorce paper and says, I'm done with you. I've had enough. I put up with your junk for too long. I'm now done with you. You see, if our relationship with Christ was built upon a contract of obedience, we would have no hope of ongoing communion with him. So how grateful we ought to be that he's long-suffering and patient and forgiving with us, his bride, the church. Steve pointed out in Sunday school this morning, made a connection from Matthew 18 into 19. The 19 follows the discussion of forgiveness. That should be the Christian's mainstay, a remembrance of what we have been forgiven of and therefore a willingness to forgive others of whatever they have done against us. Ephesians 5 explains that the relationship between a husband and wife is to be a picture of the relationship between Christ and the church. What image does the church show the world today when Christians are divorcing one another? What picture does that give a watching world when we say that we love Jesus and he never deserts us and then we desert one another? But again, you don't get there, guys. Let me just make this so clear. You don't arrive at that place by just pulling yourself up by your own bootstraps. You don't, you don't get there by just trying harder. You don't get there that way. How do you get there? By falling more and more in love with Jesus. It's in seeing the glory of Jesus and what He has done for His bride, the church, that will transform all of our desires and our behaviors in earthly marriage. It's at that moment where you'll realize it's not about my happiness, but about His glory. And truth be told... The only lasting happiness you'll ever have in this life is when your life is given to His glory and His kingdom. It's the only thing that really lasts anyway. All the rest is a bunch of lies pandered about by the devil, all empty and vain. You see, God expects His redeemed people in Christ to exemplify the original beauty and mutuality of God's design for marriage as seen in the Garden of Eden before the fall. And now for us, after the fall, we're also supposed to be a demonstration of the redeeming love of Christ in our marriages. A witness to His sufficiency, to His love and forgiveness. The general trend of our age is to move too quickly from a less than adequate exegesis of the relevant texts on divorce, marriage, or remarriage to temporal happiness and thoughts about well-being and what makes me happy. Obvious that the culture we live in is ungodly and it thinks very little about pursuing things that please God just because it pleases God. And while our culture has wreaked havoc on many, how much worse is the influence of the church and its leaders who have failed to reckon rightly with the Scriptures on so crucial a topic? We understand that the Scriptures communicate a consistent and faithful message regarding all matters that it touches. Therefore, whatever conclusion we come to regarding the exception clause It cannot contradict the rest of the Scriptures. Keep that in mind. Some might object to all of this. Jess, don't you believe that God is a God of grace? Absolutely I do. Absolutely I do. Praise the Lord that He is. 
I also believe that God is a God of steadfast love. And God is a God of commitment and truth and holiness. I also believe that God's grace should never be treated as license to do whatever we want. I also believe that God's grace means that He provides grace and strength for us to live in whatever circumstances we are in. That He loves us unconditionally. And He empowers us to live and abide by His commands. And His commandments are not burdensome. Simply stated, our marital problems derive from our sinful preoccupation with ourselves. And the only solution is to be captured by a glorious vision of God and His will. There's far too much focus on discovering legitimate reasons for divorce and not nearly enough focus on God's intention and purpose for marriage. You must always consider concessions to human weakness as subservient to the original purpose behind God's work of creation and redemption. You see, the focus of our study of marriage needs to not be consumed with discovering legitimate grounds for divorce, but with how our marriages might best live up to our Creator and Redeemer's purpose for them. We must look to Jesus and be filled with a glorious vision of His love and His purposes for our lives. That is what will transform every earthly marriage. I feel it would be wrong to close without mentioning what do we do given... Okay, I I come here on this day. Some of you I know quite well. Some I don't know at all. I have a few visitors today. So... I don't know what situation you come from. I don't know what your own past is. How do you respond to this? Well, I think John Piper provides a very fitting conclusion. I like both of these statements, so I'm going to close with these. It's a little bit long, but I want you to hear what he says, both on what is the exception clause and all of that, as well as what do you do if you happen to find yourself as one who has been divorced already? What do we do from here? Listen to this. The question of remarriage after divorce is not determined by the guilt or innocence of either spouse, nor by whether either spouse is a believer or not, nor by whether the divorce happened before or after conversion, nor by the ease or difficulty of living as a single parent for the rest of life on earth, nor by whether there is adultery or desertion involved, nor by the ongoing reality of the hardness of the human heart, nor by the cultural permissiveness of the surrounding society, Rather, it is determined by the fact that marriage is a one-flesh relationship of divine establishment and extraordinary significance in the sight of God. Only God can end the marriage, and that happens by death of one of the spouses. The grace of God provides the strength needed for a Christian to live in accordance with what God desires. Temporal frustrations and difficulties are much to be preferred over the disobedience of remarriage and will yield both deep and lasting joy, both in this life and in the one to come. Now listen to this. For those who are remarried, confess that your choice to remarry and act upon it was sin and seek forgiveness. Do not attempt to return to the first partner after entering a second union. Do not separate and live as single people thinking that will result in less sin. The Bible doesn't give prescriptions for this particular case. A union should not have been performed, but it was, and it is significant and is not to be taken lightly. Promises that have been made should be kept. The union is to be sanctified to God. Staying in the second marriage is God's will for that couple and their ongoing relations should not be looked on as adulterous. I agree with that. Absolutely true. I end with this thought. We have to speak the truth. We must speak it in love. We need to know what the Bible says. My purpose here today is not to come across rough. 
but to come across passionately about what the truth is. And I hope you all know that I love you very much. I want God's will for your lives. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for helping us as we have gone through a subject that is close to home for all of us. All of us have a different relationship to this. Some of us might be single. Some might be married. Some here might be divorced. Some might be divorced and remarried. And maybe for some of us, multiple times. We all know we can't go back and change the past. But by Your grace, You have opened our eyes to the truth of Your Word here this morning. And we know that if we will just humbly receive Your truth, that You will also give us grace to live in accordance with Your truth. Thank You that Your grace is operative not only to give us forgiveness when we fail, but also operative to give us empowerment to obey. Lord, we long for more than anything else that our lives, and therefore, if we're married, our marriages, to rebound to Your glory. For them to be pictures of the relationship that exists between Christ and His bride, the church. Lord, we know this world is not only listening to our words, but they're watching our lives. And I pray that every marriage and family in this place and all Christian unions all over the world would take very seriously their responsibility and privilege of shining as an example of the relationship that exists between Christ and His bride, the church. Lord, as a result, make us, certainly for those who are single in this room, cause them to pause and to think sincerely about the seriousness of marriage. But Lord, may it also, may you also give us encouragement because whether single or married, there are struggles and difficulties commensurate with both. Ultimately, what we realize in texts like this is that on our own, we're doomed to fail. And we have failed and we're big failures. But because you've sent a Savior, Jesus, He is our hero. He has rescued us. He has forgiven us of our sins. We'll call out to Him. And He's empowering obedience in the future. Give us a glorious vision of Him. And may that transform the way we relate with one another. We pray this in His name. Amen.